It is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Our sermon title today is This Temporary World. And I'll ask you to turn to Job 14, if you haven't already. You see, my friends, this world, God's creation, has been around for a long time. So it may not seem very temporary to us. However, in light of eternity past, before the existence of all things, and in light of eternity future in the realms of forever and ever, this world, framed in that context, is temporary. And even more temporary than that is our little slice of it. The life we've been given for the short amount of days that God has us here. And we may go through seasons that seem long. We may go through seasons where we feel as though there is unending life and youth in the days ahead. And I rarely meet people, even as I look in the mirror, I rarely meet people who truly live and operate as though this world and life is temporary. Most of us, Even faithful followers of Christ are just caught up in the middle of our world, unaware or passively moving from hour to hour, day to day and year to year. And we're not robots either. Our life in this temporary world is up and down. Our main point this morning is simply this. Faithful followers of Christ waffle between gloom and hope. I had to explain to someone after the first service, when I say waffle, I don't mean what you eat. Uh, we, we waffle, we, we go, we, we transition, we move from gloom to hope. And this is true of us all. Some days in this temporary world are better, better than others. Sometimes I'm happy. You probably can't tell with my stone face, but some days I'm happy. And some days, I'm not. And there are extended seasons of each the longer you live. And all the gray heads say amen. Now, I would speculate in a room like this, full of people created in God's image, with unique lives, that there this morning is a healthy mix of gloom and hope in this room. We all waffle between the two, sometimes multiple times a day. This is a quite normal experience, and it leads us back to our man, Job, who finds himself waffling. As we've read through this historical narrative, Job Job was the best man, the best man, faithful in following God. But there were unseen realities at play in his life. In the heavenly meeting, the accuser, Satan, had challenged God's character. The attack essentially was this. God, no one really loves you. No one really follows you. Your promises aren't true, and you don't change people's heart. It's all a scam. That was the accusation. God points to Job. He points to Job as proof that people truly do follow him. And God restrains but allows Satan to attack. Job lost his ten children, 
his livelihood, his fortune, his dreams, and now, now he suffers. If anyone understands the waffling between gloom and hope, it's Job. And of late in his life, it's been all gloom. Even as his dear friends come to be with him, as they rock back and forth with him in the ashes, as they try to counsel him, it's been mostly gloom of late. Perhaps, perhaps you can relate. God has a word for us. So consider consider Job's response here in chapter 14. First, we have the gloom. The gloom of a painful life. Would you read with me, please, verses 1 through 12? Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away. Look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there is more hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grows old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man? A man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last. And where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, So a man lies down and rises not again, till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. This is God's word. Now, as many would point out, Job turns his attention and he focuses on the fragile and fleeting nature of man's existence. Verse 1 says that all humanity is born and has just a few days on this earth. And those days are full of trouble. At best, this life is short-lived and full of pain. Mankind is the opposite of Psalm 1 and the leaf that never withers. Job tells us in verse 2 that we're like a flower that comes out and quickly dies. Historians point out that the Jewish reader would likely think of Palestinian and Middle Eastern spring rains. They say that the flowers bloom in abundance and the fields glow from their splendor, but they last for only a moment. They soon fade from the hot desert winds. And in his pain and gloom, Job says that it is the same for him and for you and I this morning. It's a condition from birth, he argues. Verse 4 reminds us that Job sees himself as an unclean person because he was born from an unclean, sinful woman. We're all a mess. We're all dying flowers, every one of us. 
Sew that on your pillow. The question comes, can I just get rest? Verse 6, I think, is telling. Job sees God's sovereign hand in all of this and argues that even hired workers get a break at the end of the day. Why can't he get a break? Because unlike a tree that can be cut down and yet new life comes from it, in contrast, Job is laid low. No rest. He's not nourished by living water. He's wasting away and dry in verse 11. He's dry spiritually, physically, emotionally. It's all pain. It's all death. It's all gloom. This seems to be a far cry from what he just said in Job 13, 15. Though you slay me, yet I will trust in you, he said. And now, gloom. Job is waffling between hope and gloom. And in this first section of chapter 14, it's all pain. Have you ever found yourself in a similar position? The circumstances of your life loom large. They seem so big. They seem so encompassing that you can't see past them. You can't see how things could get better. You can't see how God could change things. You can't see how life is worth the living. You can't see why God would allow it. And like Job, you find yourself thinking that trees have more hope than you, even though you're made in the image of God. While these verses are dark and perhaps leave us with more questions, however, we are given a faithful example of a follower, a faithful follower. A faithful follower who puts it out there. A faithful follower who doesn't pretend to be fine and talk about the weather and sports and movies. He says, you know what? My life sucks. And actually, his language is much harsher than that. His language isn't eloquent. It's not polite. But it's honest. He presses into relational community and he shares raw, honest thoughts. Even though his friends to this point have started to say some downright hurtful and wrong things about Job and God. It's not pretty. But he presses in, even when it's hard, to his friends. I think we can grow in this liquid. Like Job, we can take off the mask and speak plainly about the internal struggle and the waffling of our souls. But next in our passage, we see a transition, not just the gloom of a painful life, but we see the hope, the hope of a resurrected life. Read with me verses 13 through 17. Oh, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me 
If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag. And you would cover my iniquity. And again, we see that the waffling between hope and gloom continues. One moment, it's all pain and gloom. And the next, in the middle of doubts, in the middle of fear, pain, and questions, there's a glimmer of hope. As we said earlier, we can often see ourselves waffling between gloom and hope and even multiple times a day. And those around us might think we're a little off because of it. Here, Job still has hope. Us humans are quite complex, aren't we? Often feeling and believing parallel realities at the same time. Here in this section, I'd like to remind us a little bit of our man Job and the book as a whole. The author of the book is anonymous and unknown. Although a Jewish writer, there is no mention of Israel, the law, or the writings of Moses. Likely, Job was a man who lived before the nation of Israel existed, like in the days of Abraham. This historical narrative documents the poetic discourse of a group of friends considering suffering, wisdom, and the promises of following God. And what is remarkable in these verses, in this section, is the very Christ-centered understanding of redemption and resurrection. Perhaps Job is only clinging to the knowledge of Adam and Eve and the promise of an offspring that was to one day come and destroy evil and restore the world. Job here in these verses looks forward and hopes in a life after death. As New Covenant Christians, much of Job's language seems very similar to the work and the words of Jesus. In verses 13 and 14, Job wants freedom from his pain. If Job were to die, if he were to be hidden in Sheol, this place of darkness, this place of death, if he would be there, then he would have rest from pain in this life. He would hide out, not having to experience gloom. And, he, and the verses say that he would wait. What is he waiting for? In death, Job would be waiting for God to set a time and remember him at the end of verse 13. He would be waiting for God to bring renewal, resurrection, and a new life at the end of verse 14. Job, as a faithful follower, has the very biblical category of life after this one. Future life, future grace, future freedom, future peace. And Job doesn't just desire freedom from present pain. In these verses, he desires freedom and redemption and forgiveness for sin. 
He's an admitted, flawed, imperfect, and sinful follower of God. Who hopes, who hopes that God can help him with his sin at some future date? Look again at verses 16 and 17. Look at those first two words in 16. For then. When? When when is then? He's saying that when God remembers him, when at the appointed time I'm brought back from death, when renewal comes, when I'm resurrected to new life, then, 16 and 17, when that time comes, you will not keep watch over my sin. That sin, it'll be sealed up in a bag. That sin will be covered. Job is hoping in what we call the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of gloom, Job is hoping that someday someone will come and take care of his sin problem. Job understands in these verses that his greatest problem is not outside himself. His greatest problem is inside himself. Job's greatest problem isn't that Satan attacked him. His greatest problem is not that he lost his ten children. His greatest problem is not that he's had marital strife and his wife doesn't understand God. His greatest problem isn't that his 401 has crashed in the last ten months. His greatest problem, he says, is himself, his sin. I think we would do well to follow his example. So Job desires not just better circumstances, he desires to be right with the God who created him. Today, as faithful followers of Christ, we look back on what Job was looking forward to. We look back to the God-man, Jesus, who lived and died for our sins and rose again from the grave three days later. Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him in his work, and his promises. They receive forgiveness and have the hope that their sin is dealt with, just as what Job was hoping for would someday come. Job's hope in the resurrection is a reminder to us as we waffle between gloom and hope that this season of pain and suffering, it has an end date. It has an end date. God sees, is aware, he cares, and he has actively, divinely, graciously taken steps to bring hope to weary travelers like Job and you and I. Like Job, resolve to place your hope in a person. In God who is able to meet you where you are and bring satisfaction of living water to your thirsty souls. Like Job, may God help us to look past our circumstances and see our true underlying need, a personal relationship with God, a personal Savior who can heal my heart, forgive my sin, and enable me as I walk this life. But we transition again as we waffle back and we now see gloom. 
the gloom of a morning life. Read with me, please, verses 18 through 22. But, in contrast, I have hope. Resurrection will come, verse 18. But, but the mountain falls and crumbles away. The rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body. And he mourns only for himself. Here's how one writer describes these verses. All of this sounds good. The hope of resurrection. It all sounds good. However, Job is not done. He wakes from his delightful daydream. And chapter 14, 18 through 22 are the reality check. These lines are Job's pessimistic admission. Ha! <laughs> None of this is going to happen anyway. I don't know about you, but these verses are actually encouraging to my soul. Hard stuff is happening. Job speaks truth to himself and he thinks on the promises of God. He has hope for a moment. He has hope it will change. He has hope that renewal and resurrection will happen. And then those thoughts somehow float away and he's left doubting, fearing, dreading, gloom, mourning, and he doubts God yet again. Here's why that's encouraging to me. It tells me that I'm not the only one. It tells me that I'm not the only one. It tells me that even faithful followers of Christ waffle between gloom and hope. It tells me that when I read, speak, or am offered a word of encouragement, it doesn't always sink in right away and help me. Sometimes I'm still left in my doubts. Sometimes life is still hard after I have hope, and that hope fades away. Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. And there is no doubt about it. Job has lost his hope. Verses 18 and 19, Job has a very poetic way to say that his hope has been destroyed by falling mountains and waters that are crashing over his head. God seems far off again in verse 20. And after a moment of hope, he's left at the end of the day in verse 22 with pain and mourning. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters. You hear the encouraging song. A friend speaks truth to you. You are hopeful as the word of God is preached and you feel optimism again. And then we leave here. And we find out that those things perhaps are not quite the quick fix that we wish they would be. The moment of hope is eclipsed 
by the stark reality of dark days and dark thoughts. I talk to a lot of Christians who experience this kind of waffling and they think something is wrong with them. In our Western American minds, we often treat the gospel as a prescription to take. Oh, if if I take the Jesus pill, I'll have hope. And that hope will just sustain and I'll never feel sad. My circumstances will change and my life will go back to meeting my expectations and all my preferences. And when life doesn't work out that way, we think that there is either something wrong with us or perhaps this Jesus, the gospel, and God's word doesn't really work or change anything at all. We find ourselves, when that happens, questioning and misunderstanding God's character. Just as Satan did, just as Job's wife did, just as Job's friends have. So gradually we lose all hope. Some walk away from the faith. Some are so jaded and scarred that they never return to the body of Christ and pursue a relationship with Christ and his people. Jesus, his promises, his gospel, and the hope that is based on these realities are not a prescription to take, but rather the means in which we know God and are changed by him. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to himself, to know him and to make him known. Our union with him in Christ doesn't mean dark days and dark thoughts don't come. It simply means that we have peace, power, joy, community, and new hearts as we walk this dangerous journey called life. When we waffle between gloom and hope, we have Him. Now, at the close here, I'd like us to answer one question. How does Jesus respond to his faithful followers when they're waffling? When we ping pong between hope and gloom, when we are consistent and often failing, when we feel we are more disappointing than faithful, how does Jesus respond to us? I can't help but think of the biggest waffler among Jesus' disciples our friend and our brother, Peter. One moment he was courageous and faithful, proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. And then the next, he's grappling for position, telling Jesus his plans were wrong, pulling out swords and even denying Jesus publicly. Case study A in the waffling of a faithful follower. So I'd like you to listen and to hear the dialogue between Jesus and Peter. Right off the heels of Peter denying that he knew or followed Jesus, and right off the heels of Jesus' resurrection. John 21, we read this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, 
do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus told him what kind of death he would lead. And the conversation finishes and is documented this way. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Jesus restores his relationship with the waffler, Peter. Jesus forgives him. Jesus gives him a mission. Jesus says, keep following me. And Lakewood, Jesus would do the same for you and I this morning. If in this moment you are wrestling with guilt, regret, shame, if you've waffled so many times between gloom and hope, if you find yourself often giving up and giving in, if you read the scriptures and then the next moment fail to live the promises of God in which you just read, if that is you, I want you to know that there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Jesus, this God-man, is the friend of sinners and the one who restores weary, waffling souls. If you've wandered, if you've wandered, ask him now to restore your heart and soul to him. If you don't know Christ, if you're not following him, consider today as the day to make that decision. Ask God to change you, to forgive you, to enable you to respond in belief and obedience and follow him for all your days. Because you too waffle and you too go between gloom and hope. The Savior he meets us in the midst of it. Faithful followers of Christ waffle. We waffle. Yes, at breakfast, but then like the rest of the day too. We waffle between gloom and hope, but we cling to the Savior as we do it. Would you pray with me? Father, that is our prayer. That as we waffle between gloom and hope, you would remind our hearts of truth and hope that's found in Christ. 
And when we are in the seasons of gloom, would you help us to hold tightly to Jesus and his promises? Would you, God, show yourself to be near and powerful and comforting? Would you remind us that there's grace for us when our performance fails? Would you show us a better way? Would you help us, like Job, to press into our friends when we waffle? Would Jesus truly be strong and kind? Help us, Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.